everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And today we're going to be doing a case recommendation from Lars, our good friend Lars from the land of Vikings and fjords. Yes. Yes. So this was right up my alley, 1800s. Back in your wheelhouse. I love it. It's even reading it. I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this stuff. I love it. So we're going to talk today about the bloody benders. But before we do... I know you have some crime news you wanted to mention. Just an update for those following the Julius Jones case. So we are recording this on the 15th, the 15th of November. So his execution date is set for the 18th of November. So by the time this episode comes out, though, it'll be after the 18th. So as of right now, Governor Stint of Oklahoma has yet to grant clemency. So he is still scheduled to be executed this Thursday. So we will have to wait and see. Of course, this will be old news come Monday. Well, maybe we can do a little add-on. Maybe. Yeah. If not, fingers crossed, hopefully clemency can at least be granted and he goes from there because then it's just life imprisonment. Right. With the possibility of parole, but there's no guarantee ever you will get parole, but at least it would spare his life. Exactly. Yeah. And for those that aren't familiar, Julius Jones, it was one of our early cases that we covered. And we go into our thoughts on why clemency should be granted and our opinions on the case. So if you're interested in getting more details or understanding our viewpoint on that, uh, you can go back and listen to that episode. Yes. And you can, of course, find all of our show notes and those episodes on our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com, where you can also find our contact page if you'd ever want to reach out to us with case suggestions like Lars or just to drop a note and say hi and what you think or other drops that we get from people that are, I'm not sure they know what our podcast is about because it's very um, salacious. I get a lot of Estelle with the nude pics. Oh, I didn't know that one. (laughs) So she keeps there. I'm about to go look, but then I'm like, do I want to? It's kind of, I think it's a spammy thing because it says my Estelle has a nude photo waiting for you. Click here (laughs) kind of thing. And I'm like, Estelle, read the room. It's not, yeah, not, not that not kind right of podcast. <laughs> right. Wow. They really took, I mean, maybe it is really Estelle doing that, but they really chose the name Estelle. Like that yeah. sounds like a little bit of an, an older right. no, type it's Estelle. name. You I would get, think for clickbait purposes. We get a lot of dating websites too, which again, not that, you know, maybe couples bond and, and get together over true crime. But yeah, I'm like, mm. again, read the room. But our contact page is there if you wish to reach out to us. <laughs> Please. No nude photos. And of course, you can also reach out to us through our Facebook page, our Facebook page at Criminal Discourse Podcast and our Instagram page at Criminal Dis Pod. And we also have a YouTube channel, so you can check it out. We put little snippets out on that every now and then. Yep. We ready? I'm ready. Ready for the bloody benders? I'm ready. Okay. So as I said, we're going back to the 1800s. Uh, For those that may not know, the Homestead Act of 1862 was signed in by, do you know this? That was signed in. I know. I've heard of the Homestead Act. You're asking me the president that Uh signed it in? I don't know. Was it Lincoln? Yeah, you're right. Oh, it was Lincoln. It was Lincoln. Okay. Look at me. So 1862, towards the end of the Civil War, which affected a lot of the Midwest of the United States. The area that we're going to be focusing on is Kansas. And in this area previously, it was the territory of the Osage Indians, and they had been moved from their home in now Labette County to Oklahoma into an Indian reservation. So to make the Kansas territory available to European settlers, which hashtag not okay, but it's our history. It's our history. It is what it is. So with that act, it brought a lot of people 
towards the Midwest. And the idea was that by using this act, they would have people that would come and farm the land. So one of the families that decided to take the government up on this offer was the Bender family. And this was around 1870 in October. So five families had moved to this area of Osage, settling around seven miles from the city of Cherryvale, which would later be established. One of those families were the Benders, and the acreage that was allotted with the homestead Act was 160 acres. So they had this property and it was facing the Osage Trail, which was a very well-traveled path that was connecting, I want to say, independence, and then it went up north through Kansas. So in the Bender family, it was a four-person family. The first, uh, or I guess senior member was John Sr. And he was 50 to 60 years old, mid-50s, and he was German. He was an immigrant and spoke very little. And when he did speak, it was broken English. John Jr., who was also known as John Gebhardt, was in his mid-20s. He spoke English well, but he did have a German accent. And the men came first to the area to build uh, a dwelling. So they built a log cabin. And it was, I think the dimensions were like 24 by 16 feet, a large living dining room area now. But so it was about, yeah, 24 by 16. And it was just one big room. So if you think about the cabins that you go to even now, like camping when they have the bunk beds lined up, it was that style, just a large open area. Like where you were going to go on vacation. Yes. And then I was like, yeah, no, let's not. (laughs) Let's not have, you know, how many adults was it? Like 10 adults in 90 degree Pennsylvania August weather in a log cabin with no air conditioning, all sleeping in one bedroom with just double beds lined up. Oh, and let's add some young children in the mix. No, thank you. I'll take a rain check for never. So that was exactly the style cabin that they were in. And they also built a small barn and they had some livestock and things like that. So once the home was built, two women joined them. So one was known as Ma, and she was in her mid-50s and was described as blue-eyed, heavyset, and surly. Mm. Yes. She made me think a little bit of like the Belle Guinness Mm. description, just very ornery and stocky. Stocky. Yes, stocky as well. So she also spoke little English and was so off-putting that neighbors called her she-devil. The last member of our family is Kate. And Kate really stood out quite starkly from the rest of her family. And as Trish is reading in my notes, I put family in quotation marks because nobody really knows for sure how anybody was related. Okay. So some say that Kate and John were brother and sister, but then neighbors were saying, well, no, they were married. So they don't know if it was like one of them was a child of Ma and Pa and the other one married into the family. That seems to be the more common theory, but nobody's really sure. Was Kate Ma's daughter or was John John's son? It's just very gray area. And apparently they were so surly that nobody wanted to ask the real question. So we're not sure how anybody's related. But Kate, for for her part, she was very well-spoken. She spoke English fluently and didn't really have much of an accent. She was very attractive. There's pictures of her and she was very good looking. She was redheaded. She was friendly with everybody. And she also was a practicing spiritualist. So in this area in Kansas, there was quite a spiritualist movement going on where she could hold seances. She believed that she was a medium. She claimed to be a healer. And then she would also give speeches about spiritualism. And she would even travel a little bit like around areas in Kansas, kind of putting on her show and doing her seances and all of those things. Do you believe in mediums? I don't know. Have we ever talked about that? I don't think we have. Do you believe in mediums? I believe in There's things you can't explain. Sure. Okay. 
I want to believe. It's the skeptic in But you the that... logic part of me has some trouble connecting those dots. Sure. But I want to believe. Does that count for anything? Sure. Okay, thanks. For nothing, but yeah, sure. <laughs> so Kate believed very strongly in this, or she was scamming people. One of the two things. But again, you know, she was kind of the face of the family, and the only reason that anybody really approached them, as far as local people, everybody sort of knew to stay away from them and avoided them. John even had, John Jr. had this thing where apparently he had, I don't know if it was a nervous tick, but he would laugh. Like he would have a sentence and he would just laugh in the middle of his sentence. But it was like every sentence. So now looking back, that could have definitely been a tick or, you know, something like that where he had he didn't have control of his movements in that. But in the 1800s, that just looks like weird. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. So the cabin was intentionally built right along the road because they took this 24 by 16 cabin and they split it in half using a canvas sort of curtain. And the back half of the house was the family's living quarters. And then the front was sort of a general store slash kitchen slash they called it an inn, but really it was more a cot that somebody traveling could spend the night there a bed and breakfast a bed and breakfast like an early bed and breakfast like an early early simple probably really dirty bed and breakfast, bed and breakfast. Yeah. yes so the front part was probably they may have made the front part a little bit bigger but you got 24 feet halfway down that's 12 feet so now you've got four people sleeping in a 12 by 16 room and then the front is this general store and they had like a table and chairs and stuff set up so it was a very small living space. So again, the locals weren't very big fans of the benders, but the road was so well traveled that they could still run their business. They still had enough people coming through, getting groceries on the way. They sold like horse feed, tobacco, liquor. So people would stop in when they were on the road. And I would imagine there's not a lot of these places. So you stop when you can and refill and rest and... Yeah. And I think they were about five miles from the closest town. So when you're on a horse or on foot or in a wagon, that's a long way from town to town. So in May of 1871, there was a man found in Drum Creek, which was southeast of the Bender property. And you got to think their property was 160 acres. So it's a very large property. And the man's skull had been crushed and his throat had been slashed. But they didn't really have any leads on who he was or who had done this. There wasn't anything, anybody that could really identify him. They had just found this man that had been killed and was in a creek. In February of 1872, two more men were found with similar injuries in the same county. And by the fall of 1872, locals and locals authorities began to notice a pattern of travelers gone missing on the Osage Trail. Travelers from other areas began avoiding the route, and they even had some local groups like vigilante groups that were investigating, trying to find who was responsible, but they couldn't come up with anything. One such missing traveler was George George Newton Lonker. After the death of his wife, he and his daughter, now some say that she was around 18 months old, and then I saw something else where they said she was like five years old. So there's a bit of a range there, but his young daughter, they began traveling from Independence, Kansas towards Iowa, but they never made it. So Soon after they had left and started traveling, Dr. William Henry York, who was a former neighbor of Longcore, found out that his wagon and horses had been abandoned near Fort Scott, Kansas. So Dr. York had actually sold him the team of horses and the wagon, and that's how they tracked him down. So they found this abandoned wagon and horses. I don't know if there was maybe paperwork or something showing that it had previously belonged to Dr. York. 
Maybe some stamp of some sort of brand. Yeah, maybe a brand on a horse or something. But they were able to track him down and say, hey, is this your horse and wagon? And he came to the conclusion, well, yeah, but that's what I sold to this guy. But he did come up from Independence to check it out and make sure that it truly was his wagon and horses. So Dr. York set out again to claim the wagon and the horses and also to search for George. And his daughter. And his daughter, right. So when he arrived in Fort Scott, he identified that the horses and the wagon were his and that the, there was clothing left behind that he could identify as George and Marianne's. So there is dispute on whether at this point, so he gets the wagon and everything and he's coming back. Was he coming back down to investigate and look for George or was he just returning to independence? So in any case, he also goes missing on the Osage Trail and was never seen or heard from again. Now, as opposed to some of the other people that may have gone missing or these men that had been found and couldn't be identified, Dr. York came from a very prominent and somewhat local family. So even though most of the people that were going missing were travelers, he was a local. I mean, independence wasn't that far. I'd have to look at how many miles it was. And he also came from a family who had the resources to look for him. So he had two brothers. One was Colonel Ed York and the other was Alexander M. York, who was a member of the Kansas State Senate. So they had some 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 pull. Some pull. So Colonel York quickly organized a search party of 75 men who searched the area for Dr. York. And in March of 1873, they tracked him to Bender Inn. So in the initial meeting, the Benders denied any knowledge of Dr. York and thought that maybe he had met with some foul play at a location near Drum Creek, where John Jr. claimed to have been attacked and shot at around the same time that Dr. York disappeared. So they're saying, you know, hey, maybe he was coming through here. This is kind of a bad area where we've been attacked before. Something could have happened to him there. Without any proof that they were involved in the disappearance, Colonel York had no choice but to leave. Now, he continued to search, and in April, he found the story of a woman who had claims against the benders. Now, she was known as the kind of the local crazy. So when she had originally made these claims, no one really listened to her or took her seriously because apparently a lot of things could come out of her mouth. But Colonel York was more than willing to listen. So she claimed that she went to the Bender residence to see Kate for a seance and that partway through, Kate began saying that the spirits were telling her to kill the woman and started threatening her with knives, just like out of the blue. So the woman fled from the home and was able to get away and never return to the Bender residence. Now, with just this new information in hand, Colonel York returned to the Benders with armed men. Good call for Colonel York. Well, clearly when he met with him, he thought something wasn't on the up and up. Right. And so this woman though not really reliable, kind of gave him enough to be like, okay, I'm going back. Yeah. And I'm going back armed. Yes. To investigate more. So though Elvira, who was Ma, initially pretended not to understand English, she starts yelling about how the woman had cursed her coffee when Colonel York keeps pressing her. So I guess like he's pressing her for information about this woman who's saying that she had been attacked. And Elvira is like, well, she cursed my coffee. And all of a sudden she speaks English. Like, Not broken English. Like English. English. Yeah. Enough English to be understood. Yes. Wow. She really mastered that pretty quick. I know. It's it's magic. Maybe it was, you know, a spirit coming through her and speaking the English. I'm not sure. So she got frustrated. She kicks the men out. But it was too late. They already know now, okay, this person who was pretending to speak English obviously does. And just seeing her reaction to that gives them a better idea of who she really is, what's really going on. Something shady's going on. Yes. 
a bender in. So hoping to diffuse the situation, Kate offered to use her psychic abilities to assist Colonel York in his search for his brother. And she told him that if he returned that Friday night with fewer men, she would show him Dr. York's grave. I bet she would. Mm -hmm. So greatly due to Colonel York's persistence in the search for his brother, a community meeting was called in the local schoolhouse. And basically, they were coming together to say, look, these people are going missing. Travelers have stopped coming through here because of it. Something's going on. And we as a community need to figure out what's happening, or if this isn't happening here, we need to exonerate ourselves, basically. Right, because they're losing business, too. Exactly. So they came together and they decided as a community to obtain search warrants for every property between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek, which would, of course, include Bender Inn. So Colonel York, John Sr., and John Jr. were all in attendance at this community meeting. So they knew it was coming. They knew it was coming, yes. A few days later, a local noticed that the animals on the Bender property were dead or starving. You could just tell that they hadn't had water. They hadn't had food. They were just in really bad shape. And upon investigating, elected township officer Leroy Dick found that the property had been abandoned. So he found that the property had been abandoned. And when he walked inside, there was a really bad odor coming from a trap door that had been nailed shut underneath a bed. So once he started smelling that, he called in a search party and just seeing that the house had been abandoned and they turned up in hundreds. So hundreds of locals came up with shovels because they're thinking, well, these people cut out. It must be them. So we're going to need to find whatever they've been hiding. And they were ready to search Bender in. So the smell from the cellar when they opened it was actually coming from old blood. So there was blood like around the opening to this trap door, but it was also soaking into the soil. And you could see like just the, the stones and everything were covered and just blood everywhere. So they searched, but they didn't find any bodies in the house and sort of like surrounding the house. But they had 160 acres. They had 160 acres. And very close to the house, there was an orchard where they saw mounds of what looked like fresh dirt. So the first victim to be found was Dr. William York. He was decomposing, but his he was still at a stage where his brother was able to identify him. Next, they found George Lonco and Marianne, his daughter, buried together. And as they searched the orchard, they would come to find 10 bodies as well as additional dismembered parts. So with the parts that they found, because obviously DNA wasn't a thing in 1870, they estimate anywhere from 10 to 20 victims. And how long did this go on for? Did they think from the first victim to the last? So it would have been from May of 1871 to the spring of 1873. Oh, wow. So two years. So some of the other victims that had been found were L.G. Brown, and he was from Cedarville County. He had been recognized by a silver ring that they had found on the body. There was also a W.F. McCrody who had been recognized, Henry McKenna. I believe he had been wearing something that his wife was able to to identify him with. And then Peter Boyle, who was identified by a shirt that his wife had made for him. When you say they found a ring, I'm surprised they left jewelry on him. Do we know why they killed these people? I'm assuming for their money or their goods that they had on them. But then the wagon and the horse are left, not taken. The rings left on the body. I'm just curious. So it's believed that the main motivation was money. But like you said, there's inconsistencies there. So some of it they think was just also bloodlust. 
that they just got into killing and enjoyed it and kept doing it. But the main motivation seemed to be monetary. Now, it's when I say silver ring, I'm not sure if it was actual silver. It could have been just a plain metal that was the color silver. I doubt that if it was real silver, they would have left it. But I'm surprised they didn't sell the horse in the wagon. Well, I mean, maybe they could have been too easily identified. I'm not sure. We'll get to it too. But they did also, they weren't selling these goods themselves. So it may have been a matter of what these other people would accept to fence. So Marianne was the only female and the only child. All of the others were men. And she was the only victim with a different cause of death. So it appeared, they said in the newspapers at the time, it looked like she had been buried alive because she didn't have any marks on her. She didn't have any anything that they could tell that she had been killed differently. The only other possibility was that she would have been suffocated, but it's it was impossible to tell. They weren't going to do an obstetopsy and see if she had dirt in her lungs. So we're not really sure. Either way, it's that's like the heart-wrenching, most heart-wrenching part of the story, I think, is this just poor child that's wrong place, wrong time. All the other victims had been hit in the back of the head with a blunt object, most likely a hammer and had their throats slit. And that was consistent across all of the other victims. So based on the evidence found in the home, it's believed that they would give their victim the seat at the head of the table, which would have been right in front of that partition, that canvas partition. So when they were at the table, somebody would come behind the partition and hit them over the head. So that way the person that was coming to hit them wouldn't be seen. And then once they were hit on the head, someone else would come and slit their throat to ensure their death. Now through this, when you read articles and everything, the idea that they had at the time is that Kate was sort of the mastermind behind all of this. And she would be the one flirting, charming, distracting, getting information on if this person actually has money or if this person has family that will come looking for them, kind of charming her way into knowing a little bit about their victim. And then one of the men would come behind and actually kill them. She didn't do a good job with Dr. York. Well, no, she didn't. But one of the theories is that Dr. York, if he was searching for George and tracked him down to the benders, that he was questioning them and to kind of silence him and not have any because he was looking for George and was suspicious them taking care of him for that, which would also coincide with her telling then Colonel York, hey, we'll just come by with a few less men and I'll help you out. Like, Like I helped your brother. Exactly. So the trap door was positioned around the same spot of, you know, where this table and this canvas was so that they could easily be dropped down into the cellar. And then it was believed that nightfall would come and they would then remove the bodies and go and bury them in the orchard. There were also bullet holes found in the cabin, but they're believed to be from victims fighting back. So if somebody gets hit in the head, they start to fight back, shoot, shoot, shoot. Uh, One of the few items found in the cabin was a Bible with notes in German, and it identified John Jr. as John Gebhardt. So that's why we had that as one of the aliases. And this as well as reports from neighbors suggest that they may, John and Kate, have been a couple instead of brother and sister, because then Kate would have been their daughter and John would have married into the family was the idea. So as far as their actual, 
identity. Like I said, none of them is actually they don't they're not sure that they were related and none of them is believed to have Bender as their true name. Elvira is thought to have been born Elmira Mark in the Adirondack Mountains and to have had multiple children's and husbands, some of whom may have died of head injuries before she took up the Bender alias. And John Sr. was likely born John Flickinger before immigrating from either Germany or the Netherlands. The belief is also that Kate Bender was truly Elvira's daughter, and that would have been her fifth child, Eliza Griffin. Griffin would have been her father's name. So the idea is the theory Kate is Elvira's daughter. Elvira gets with John Sr. John Jr. marries Kate. And they all become the Benders. And they become the Benders. But nobody's last name originally was Bender. Right. Not even John Sr. No. So I don't know if it was more an, an immigrant trying to take a more English name, maybe. Or maybe he just had a record or a previous history and changed his name for that purpose. So after the gruesome discoveries were made on the property, uh, the state senator, Alexander York, who was Williams York's brother, and the Kansas governor, Thomas A. Osborne, offered substantial rewards for the apprehension of the family. I think it was, I have a picture of the poster. Let me see how much it was. So they had a $2,000 reward. Which is a lot of money back then. It's a lot of money. So it was 500 per person for a total of 2000 So thanks to the Google, we know that $2,000 in 1870 today would be about $41,879. Yep. So significant. Significant. Significant reward. So with this reward, obviously, there were a lot of detectives, law enforcement, and also vigilantes that were out looking for the family, but nothing was ever found. Detectives followed wagon tracks to find the family's horses, and they had been abandoned 12 miles north of the inn. So they took off and then they abandoned their wagon. Now, some say that John Jr. and Kate traveled by railroad to an outlaw colony near the Texas-New Mexico border where law enforcement, I guess, couldn't go at the time. And one detective even claimed to have tracked him to the border and said that he had died of apoplexy. John Jr. There were also reports that Ma and Pa Bender had fled towards St. Louis, Missouri. And for many years after the crimes, they had all these instances where two women would be traveling together and they'd be accused of being Ma and Kate. Uh, and they had groups that had said that they had caught and killed the Benders as well, but they couldn't provide any evidence to claim the cash reward. So nobody knows what happened to them. In 1884, there was an elderly man who investigators said matched the description of Pa Bender. And he was arrested in Idaho for a murder committed with a hammer, which would fit fit the profile. But while waiting for more details from Kansas, he tried to escape by severing his own foot. No. No. <laughs> I mean, just the logic. I get it. You're trying to escape, but you've severed your foot. Are you foot. hopping? Are you just yeah. hopping like, away? How are you getting away? Well, he bled out, so he didn't get very far. And then he had decomposed before an identification could be made. So by the time that he had bled out and everything happened, they couldn't identify him. In 1889, a mother, Almira, and a daughter, Sarah Elizabeth, were arrested for larceny in Michigan, and they had been accused of being Elvira and Kate Bender. And they were actually brought to Kansas. And there was a, a panel from Labette County that was supposed to confirm their identity, but they couldn't. It was inconsistent. They couldn't come to a conclusion that it was them. And because they couldn't confirm their identity, they were sent back to Michigan. So as I said, you know, part of the motivation was robbery. And though the benders couldn't be found, they did find accomplices that helped fence the goods that had been stolen. So there were 12 men in total. 
that were charged as accessories for helping dispose of stolen goods. And this included Mitt Cherry. And he was a member of the Vigilante Committee. And he actually it was revealed later, had forged a letter to one of the victim's wives, making it appear that he had arrived at his destination safely. Ooh, he was complicit. Yes. So somebody, like, they knew what was going on then. Clearly. So the home of the Benders was infamous, obviously, and people came from all around to loot the property. That's 168. Right. Well, and especially the, like, the cabin itself. They were taking bricks from the walls. They took trees from the ground. So I don't know if this was, like, from the orchard, but they were, like, digging up and taking trees. I don't understand. But all of this memorabilia to the point where they said pretty much there's the timbers of the cabin and that's it. Everything else was gone. So the hammers that were ar- allegedly taken from the home have been displayed at the Cherryville Museum and they're still there. And a stained knife thought to have been taken from the Bender Inn now belongs to the Kansas Historical Society. We can put that stop on our road trip. We'll go to the Velisca Act Murder House mm-hmm. and we'll wing through Kansas. Yeah, we can do that. Head to the Bender Inn or I guess the Kansas Historical Society. Well, and the orchard because I think this property went up for sale somewhat recently and they still the orchard area where the bodies were they still call it hell's half acre if anybody's interested I don't know if it's still for sale but I did see like a CNN article where they were talking about the sale of the the whole 160 I think it had been broken down a little bit I think it was like minus 20 some acres or something but a big bit of property yep anybody looking to build in Kansas on a murder property there you go so criminal discourse life tip I'm gonna go with not cutting off your own foot okay if you're looking to escape not a smart move yeah but also don't put your back to a canvas wall no i'm not feeling that no that would be super sus don't travel alone well i'm gonna say (laughs) next time i come over to your house i'm not sitting near the patio doors (laughs) i'm just telling you that no but this was did you like this case yeah it was a good one thank you lars lars always comes up with some good ones didn't he give you bell gunness too yeah see lars and i are you you and lars are on the same wavelength there yep you got to come to the u.s lars We'll talk about old time. Maybe things. we should go to the land of Vikings and fjords. Can we? I mean, we have we to can. probably finally get a passport. But yeah, yeah, we, you I'll, would. I'll get around to it. Yeah, you're never going to get a passport. You don't you know like I have to flying. Fly. <laughs> you, I don't. You're going to take a boat. <laughs> oh, but good. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. We greatly appreciate it. Like we said earlier, you can reach out to us through a couple means. But the only thing we would ask if you enjoyed this episode is to give us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. And a five star, we'd appreciate it even more. And of course, word of mouth. Yeah. So again, thank you so much. And let's remember, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve the crime. Like the crazy lady who told her story about running away and almost being murdered by the yes. benders. Or people that knew that people had stopped as they were traveling at the benders Inn, which is what caused suspicion in the first place. That is correct. And as always, we want you to remain safe out there. But we also need to remember to be kind to one another. So until next time, bye. bye.